0: We're looking at Colossians chapter 3, and particularly verses 5 through to 11. We're picking up uh, Paul's teaching from last week when he was really laying the foundation for the means for holiness, namely that we've been raised with Christ, so we're a real Christian, we have spiritual power, and then urged us to use that power, to seek that which is above and set our minds on things above, to, to use the power that we have through being a real Christian, through having God's Spirit. In us being raised with Christ and now we come to um, the next stage in his teaching about holiness and so this is verse 5 and we're looking this morning from verse 5 through to verse 11 so let's hear God's Word put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity Passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them on. All away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which has been renewed in knowledge after the image. Of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is God's word. Amen. The holidays were originally meant to be holy days. How times have changed, huh? Back in the Middle Ages, people came up with this idea of setting aside certain special seasons to build again your relationship with God, to craft again the the life of the soul, to to set aside a special day or set of days to grow spiritually, to, to deal with sin, and move ahead with your life with Jesus, with God. They were holidays or holy days. And nowadays we have the holidays, but they don't, in most people's minds, mean being holy or holy days. They mean, what, what are the holidays like these days? It's like they're shopping. Store days, shopping days, buying stuff days, hassle days, like there are are all these different things you have to go to, all the different events. So what we're thinking about here at College Church is how do we turn the holidays into holy days? How do we make them days when we reconnect with God, when we sense uh, this transcendence, this meaning of life, when we When we're renewed spiritually, how do we do that? And so what we're doing is we're looking at Paul's teaching in the book of Colossians, particularly the second half of the book of Colossians. You see, what was going on was that the Colossian Christians had been hearing some false teaching about holiness or how to be holy. And these false teachers had been bad-mouthing the Apostle Paul's teaching as inadequate to produce holiness and that they'd replaced uh, what he'd been teaching with their own ideas, and in particular, they had uh, put forward various sort of regulations and rules and mysticisms and, and special celebrations, and we're not clear exactly what it is they were saying because we weren't there when they were saying it, but you can read from the way that Paul's teaching in the book of Colossians that there were these false teachers who were imposing upon the Colossian Christians their theory about being holy. And what in the essence they were saying was Paul's teaching is not enough. What you need is something else if you're really to grow spiritually, if you're really to be holy. And so what Paul does is he goes back to the very source of all things. In other words, he exalts Christ as sufficient in every possible way. We already heard it quoted at the communion table. He is the image Of God. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He reconciled to Himself all things through His death on the cross. He is sufficient for everything, and therefore He is surely. Colossian Christians, sufficient for you to grow spiritually, Paul's saying. He's saying don't listen to these false teachers. Don't listen to what they say about how to be holy. They're wrong. It won't make you holy. They're, they're proud rules. Uh, he lists some of them. Don't handle. Don't taste. Don't touch. Oh, they sound very mm, clever, very practical, very good, but actually they won't help. No, what you need is Not something different. What you need is more of what I've already given you, Paul is saying. As you have received Christ as Lord, so walk in him, the key verse for this book. And now in Colossians chapter 3, as so often in Paul's letters in the second half of the book, he begins to apply the foundation that he's been teaching. If Christ is sufficient for all things... Therefore, you must walk in him, and he begins to teach how to do that. And as I said in the first few verses we looked at last week, he exhorts the power, that is, since Christ has, uh, since you have been raised with Christ, therefore set your mind on things above, therefore seek him. Because you have this power, therefore use it, he's saying. Of course, it raises another whole set of questions, which is how? What is the method? How do you do that? If you're not to seek wholeness like the false teachers were saying how are you meant to do it, Paul? And so Paul begins to explain that with our verse 5 of our passage this morning. He says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And then he lists some of these earthly things that we'll look at in just a moment. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. In other words, Paul is saying that the only way For a Christian to grow in wholeness, to have our holidays be holy days, the only way to become more spiritually mature, the only way to to deal with sin in our lives and to be holy, the only way is by a process of what I call spiritual violence, put-to-death sin. One of the great uh, Puritan teachers, John Owen, uh, described it like this. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You can't take it lightly. You've got to take it seriously. You can't pretend. It doesn't matter. It does matter. This has been the teaching of all the great masters, the great master teachers on holiness down through the years. Uh, J.C. Ryle, a famous bishop, Anklin bishop in the 19th century, wrote this classic book on holiness called... Holiness, you know, easy to remember. Um, And in it, he basically said the same thing. The most important thing is for you to remember that actually the Christian life is a fight. Do you know that, Christian? Do you realize that your Christian life is a fight? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You must put to death what is earthly in you. You need this process of spiritual Violence. You say, oh, I don't believe that. Let me put it like this. A little sin. It's only a little sin. Just a small little sin. Doesn't bother anyone else. It's my own private little sin. Here it is. It's like a little pet sin over here. Just a small little thing. A little sin is like a little poison, a little cancer. In fact, the Bible describes sin in, uh, in the book of Genesis as uh, almost like an animal, a wild animal that is out to get you. A little sin that you feed and nourish and keep private and don't deal with and pretend doesn't matter very much and keep on doing it more and more. You're feeding it. You're nourishing it. It's like having a a little pet baby lion. You keep feeding it. and It's going to grow and grow. And one day it will devour you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You say, how do I do that? Well, as we looked at last week, the most important precondition is to remember that this is a spiritual work, not what the false teachers were saying, which is, oh, you've just got to follow various regulations and rules and sort of mystical things. No, it's a spiritual work. In other words, you must be born again, or as Paul puts it here, you must be raised with Christ. Let me ask you, have you been raised with Christ? I'm not threatening you. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you that perhaps the reason why you have so little power over the sin in your life is because you do not have any power. Have you been raised with Christ? Let Christ appeal to you through me. Be raised with Christ. Put, Put your trust in Christ. Turn from your sins. Receive him in your heart. This morning, now, that you be raised with Christ. That's the precondition. It's a spiritual work, but it is also a deeply practical work too. And here in our passage, Paul outlines three steps to putting sin to death. The first step is to develop conviction. We need to be convinced, we need to have a conviction that sin is actually sin otherwise obviously we won't do anything about it. And so Paul was very specific. Here's the list that we skipped over before, but here it is. Sexual immorality. That means sex, any kind of sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. That's what the word pornea means, anything outside the covenant of marriage. Sexual immorality, that is sin impurity. That means that which makes dirty the clean Christian life. We're meant to be a pure stream, thinking about pure things, the fruit of the Spirit. We're not to have any rottenness in us, any impurity in us. That is sin. Passion actually means lust. We use passion in positive ways these days. He has a passion for football or passion for, for this activity. He has a passion even for God. These are good things. Here, the word passion means lust. Evil desire obviously is a desire for that which is evil. Covetousness, or in more contemporary language, greediness, which, note this, Paul says, is idolatry. What he means is that greed is really a worship problem. Greed is a worship problem problem. For greed is worshipping things rather than God, the creation, rather than the Creator. And if greed is really idolatry, as Paul says, and therefore really a worship problem, how do we deal with greed? We deal with greed by elevating who God is, that is by worshipping God. When we enjoy God as the real God, as he truly is, we will kill the greedy desire for anything or anyone else. For we have God, what else do you need? If you're struggling with greed, likely as not, Paul says, for greed is idolatry, what you're really struggling with is a big enough vision for who God is. If you have God, you need nothing else. And is it I ask you by accident that as our culture all around the the west these days becomes more divided between the haves and the have-nots the 1% and the 99% and is fueled by constant greed for more and more greed is good it is even said is fueled by greed is it by accident that at the same time attendance at worship churches across the country is not rising that the worship of God is not being elevated for at the same time greed is increasing because greed is idolatry and we fix greed by having a thrill of worship in the presence of Christ and that is why worshiping together is so important. You come together, you look around each other and we elevate Christ together for then we will fix the greed in our lives. So this first step is to develop a conviction that sin truly is sin. You say, well, that's relatively easy when it's listed like this one. And, but what about something else that perhaps isn't actually listed in the Bible? But I, I wrestle with whether this, this thing that I want to buy is actually, would be greedy for me to buy, or whether it would be a legitimate exercise of, um, uh, of enjoying God's creation. And how do I know? It's a good question. And the Bible does talk about this, particularly in 1 Corinthians. Let me summarize it for you with four quick questions that will help you develop conviction in areas that are not clearly addressed specifically in a list like this in the Bible of sins. Here are the four questions. Question one, is this beneficial to me spiritually, even physically? Is it beneficial? Is it doing me any good? First question. Second question, does this control me? The Bible says we are only to serve the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not to have anything else control us. Am I under its power? Second question, does this control me? Third question, does this hurt others? It may be an area where it's fine for me, it doesn't damage my conscience, but maybe it damages someone else's conscience, and therefore I will not do it, certainly not in front of them. Does it hurt others? Question four, does this glorify God? Of course, the most important question of them all. So at any rate, the first step to put sin to death is to develop a conviction that sin is sinful. Otherwise, obviously, we will not even attempt to do anything about our little pet sin lion. We must develop a conviction that sin is indeed sinful. The second step is developing a commitment to this process of spiritual violence, or putting to death, which commitment purges in verses 6 to 8. He says this, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must, look at this commitment, you must, not you could or you may or you might, so it's an option, you must... Put them all away, and then he has another list of sins that we will go through again in just a moment. But in other words, what Paul is saying here is that if we ever lacked commitment to put sin to death, then here is something that will put backbone into the fight of any Christian. That is a consideration of the wrath of God. When we talk about God's wrath, we are not talking about God losing his temper or getting mad or angry in the sense of flying into a fit of rage. The wrath of God, no, it's not that. The wrath of God is God's set disposition against anything that is evil, unjust, unholy, that damages his creation or dishonors him as the creator. You say, why are we even mentioning this at Advent? Let me tell you why. For our season of Advent is not just to remember the Advent or the coming of baby Jesus in a manger in the past. No, Advent is about looking forward to, longing for the Advent or the coming of King Jesus when He comes again to reign in all glory and to judge the living and the dead. This is part of what Advent is about. Jesus is coming back and we had better be ready. Why, well, you say to me, well, does God have a right to be angry? A lot of people wonder that today. Look at it like this. In the last few decades, hundreds of female athletes have been sexually abused by individuals working for gymnastics programs across the country. At the trial of the most notorious of those abusers, a father momentarily lost his patience and was televised attempting to reach the criminal and act his rage upon him before he was rightly restrained from doing so. Let me ask you this, was the father's anger understandable? Should the justice system, once due process and proper investigation is completed, convict a man guilty of such heinous crimes? Should the wrath of the courts enact justice? Let me ask you, let me give you another example. Recently another man has confessed to over 90 murders across the country of mainly marginalized prostitutes that he picked out because he thought no one would care about them or notice them left them in a ditch, and it isn't until years later that people have connected the dots and realized that they were part of a pattern of a mass murderer. Should that man, let me ask you this, should that man suffer the consequences of his crimes? What about those crimes that are never solved or never is justice served in this world? Did Hitler, when he committed suicide, get away with it? Do you want to live in a world where there is no final justice and where there is no wrath of God to come? I don't think anyone does. Not any Christian. Now, the wrath of God is a fearful consideration, and rightly so. All sins can be forgiven when we confess them to God and repent and trust Jesus for our salvation. So if you're in Christ, you are not then subject to the wrath of God. But, Paul says here, we must put to death what is still earthly in us because it is for these very sins that God's wrath is coming. In other words, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Your very spiritual life is at threat. Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards said it this way. Resolved never to do that which I would be afraid to do, were it the last thing I did in my life. Why? Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. We must commit to this, commit, commit to this process of spiritual violence. In these you too once walked, Paul says, when you were living in that lifestyle in that way, but now you must. You must I've underlined that in my notes. We perhaps underline it in your Bible. You must put them all away. Put them to death. Well put what to death. Well, having listed sins of the heart in verse five, Paul now, with this new list, focuses on the divisive talk that so often destroys relationships. Anger, wrath, both of these are in the sense of human, unrighteous, angry words, not God's set just disposition against evil, but the kind of angry words that do so much damage in human relationships. Malice, meaning nasty, spiteful, mean words. Slander, meaning saying what is not true about someone else, that damages that person's reputation. Obscene talk from your mouth, not here meaning dirty words or swearing. No, what, what what's being meant here is abusive talk. That is talk, like the rest of this list, that is divisive. Now, Satan uses divisive talk to damage relationships and attempt to derail the mission of the church. Divisive talk is serious. It is so serious that it is because of such things that God's wrath is coming. I remember one person who never, it seemed, did anything wrong in the sense of sexual immorality. He seemed to be living a clean Christian life. But as we got to know him, it became clear that he was a slanderer and a gossip. A little half-truth whispered there, a little bit more divisive talk whispered over there. Soon enough, whole groups of people were in conflict with each other over what was going on in their minds because of this man's slander of various people. I remember once literally watching him Dance with joy, bop to the music that was going on in the background when he had felt that he had managed to ruin someone's reputation through a bit of slander and malice. It is one of the devil's most common tactics to use the close relationships of a church to ruin people's reputations through divisive talk. Now, if someone tells you something malicious... Say this, have you spoken to the person himself about that? And if someone has spoken divisive words about you, would you listen to the uh, advice of uh, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon? He gave three simple phrases that he used to remind his students not to fear what people said about them. Here are the three phrases. They say, you know, they say, they say. It's always the way it begins. They say. What do they say? Let them say. In other words, while there is a place for correcting slander, there is a bigger, more fearsome picture. It is on account of slander that God's wrath is coming, and God will not be mocked by divisive talk. And therefore, leave it to God to judge, and you tremble rather than speak. One divisive word. Friends, never has this temptation been more real than it is today. Facebook, Twitter, email, WhatsApp, Instagram, whatever else. All these internet forums give us the opportunity to be brave slanderers hidden behind a keyboard. What is the line from those superhero movies? With great power comes great responsibility. Each of us Each of us with a phone today has great power. There's more computing power in one of those phones than was used to send a man to the moon. You can communicate with thousands of people at a touch of a button. Commit, would you commit to put to death divisive speaking and texting and typing slander of whatever kind? So he puts into death first step Developing conviction. Second step, developing commitment. Then finally, third step, by developing a vision, a positive vision for the end results of your wholeness. Look down at verses 9 to 11. I love how Paul does this. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing, he's developing the vision here, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed In knowledge, after the image of its creator here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Here then is his vision. Where we do not lie to each other or spread divisive talk, where we are renewed by God's word more into the image of our Creator. Here is a community of different races and classes all united in Christ. Imagine a place where people of all ages, all colors, all socioeconomic brackets live as one. Imagine a place where family tensions at Christmas are not worsened but improved by the holidays. Imagine a place where relational frictions are forgiven. Imagine a place where a billionaire holds hands with a pauper and the children of refugees are embraced by border guards. Imagine, Paul is saying, what becoming more like Christ could do, for this is who Christ is. He is the one in whom all these divisions, Jews and non-Jews, barbarians and Scythians, the uncivilized and the civilized, the, the, the uncultured and the cultured, slave or free, all these divisions by the power of His gospel have broken down. And so it is as we are renewed by the knowledge of the truth of God's Word, as we stop lying and stop speaking divisive words, as we become more holy that the holidays are transformed. They are gradually transformed to being places where the wolf can lie down with the lamb, the estranged father with the embittered daughter, the grandchild with the grandmother, and the beloved prodigal is embraced in the all-encompassing love of the father. This, Paul is saying, is what becoming more like Christ can do. For this is who Christ is. And this is what holiness, being like Christ, is all about. Imagine it. Imagine a family, a church, a school, a community, a world that is ruled by the King of all kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine holidays that are holy days. And so put sin to death for this vision of the new community in Christ. If you are a small group leader, your commitment to read the Bible in private will be the example that helps shape your small group around the Bible. If you are a student leader, your commitment to private prayer will help raise a generation of teenagers who are prayer warriors following your example. If you are a deacon, your commitment to personal generosity will help build a healthy budget. If you are an attendee or member, your commitment to speak the truth and avoid divisive talk will help build a healthy community. If you are a mother, a child, a father, a grandfather, as you develop a conviction of about sin, a commitment to put sin to death, your growing Christ-likeness will do more to bless your family than anything else you could possibly do. It's that big a vision and it makes that much difference. And the stakes are that high. I, I remember one person who was highly critical of a, of a ministry that we had uh, at the church I was serving. Each uh, Sunday, there were people in church who had recently been sleeping on the streets, and we had a ministry to reach out to them. These people were not always well-groomed. They had not always had a shower, and their manners were usually not church manners, I can tell you. What are those people doing here? He would say. How can you allow let allow them in church? Years later I discovered that this individual had been nurturing for many years a private sin. He'd been feeding it, grooming it, hiding it, letting it grow. And as the lion of his sin had grown up, it killed his love for the homeless by hardening his heart against the marginalized, the uncultured of whatever kind. Church for him was just a club for his own needs. He had no compassion for the lost. Perhaps the reason why you are struggling to love that individual is because of that little, that little sin. But then I remember another Christian leader who was holding together a wide variety of different people in unity across different denominational lines, different personalities, different races. And I remember I, stu- I, I stumbled into his office unannounced one day and I saw this man in knee on his knees in prayer at his chair. Your homeless Grandfather... Grandmother, father, son, teenager, student. Your holiness has a ripple effect on the whole community, either for positive or for negative. Will you catch this vision of the difference it will make if you are convinced and committed to put sin in your life to death? We're talking about relational reconciliation. We're talking about people from different races getting along. We're talking about families being rebuilt. And it comes down to you taking seriously Paul's call here to put sin to death. So we have a conviction, a commitment, and a vision Well, as we conclude, let me then apply this specifically to these holidays. How do you make these holidays holy days? I'm going to encourage you, equip you, and then inspire you. To encourage you, let me remind you that though these holidays you might sense that the days are long and the snow or rain outside is unwelcome, or you think fondly of lost loved ones, And you are unsure how to get in or stay in the right frame of mind that you might not speak divisive words but speak healthy words. And it is a test for you. Let me remind you that this is a process. It is a process of spiritual violence but it is still a process. It is not immediate victory. It is obedience and a commitment to that process. One author on Holiness put it like this, learning this, he said, that is learning this process of spiritual violence, learning this is usually a slow and painful process fraught with much failure. Our old desires and sinful habits are not easily dislodged. To break them requires persistence, often the face of little success, but this is the path we must Painful though it may be, it is an encouragement to you because you and I must commit to this process and persist in it even when we fail. A righteous man falls down many times, but he stands up again. And this is a call to you to again commit to put sin to death. But then I also want to equip you. How in particular can you make progress in holiness? these holidays well ensure you spend time in prayer don't let your schedule become so packed that you have no time for God Uh, first thing in the morning or if your mother maybe after the children have gone to school or last thing at night one way or another make sure you have time for prayer spend time in the Bible Uh, We talk of reading the Bible, studying the Bible, but this holidays, would you specifically spend time meditating on the Bible? Meditation, in a Christian sense, is the art of taking a Bible text and churning it over in your mind until it penetrates deep within. I encourage you to do that with Colossians chapter 3, this Advent. Memorize it if you can. The memorizing of Scripture is a powerful weapon in the fight against sin. If you have children, you might like to do what we do as a family. We have a Bible verse each day of Advent that we read out. Um, We have other Advent calendars too, by the way. I think we have a Star Wars one this year as well. So we're not all kind of super spiritual and religious in the Moody family. But there is an Advent calendar that we have with Bible verses for each day of Advent that tells the story of Christmas. It is a good family tradition. I commend it to you. And of course, make the most of what we offer here at College Church. Tonight is carols and cocoa. It's an opportunity to invite friends with you to College Church for an open house for the community, and then pretty much every Sunday evening we have something, and then of course, Christmas Eve, invite friends, be praying now about who to invite to those Christmas Eve services. There's no greater way, you know, no greater way. To make the holidays holidays than to be active in inviting people to come with you to church on Christmas Eve, because as you share Christ, you will confirm in your own heart your commitment and your conviction that Christ must rule your life as you witness to Him this Advent season. Encourage you, equip you, and inspire you. Here, Here, at church, as we put death-to-death sin and enter into that process, as we develop conviction and commitment and vision of the impact of your wholeness on the community, here, at College Church, is a beautiful symphony of Christocentric unity. Neither Greek nor Jew, neither slave nor free, neither barbarian nor Scythian. Um, how, shall we, how shall we put it here? Um, neither South Wheaton nor North Wheaton. Neither Wheaton College graduate nor Wheaton community that didn't go to Wheaton College. Old, young, rich, poor. gone. Christ is all and is in all. Well, let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we do bow before you and pray that would be the case. We pray that Christ... You would rule in our hearts and minds individually and as a church community. We pray, Lord Jesus, that Your rule would extend this Christmas to the community around us as well. We pray, Lord, that as that happens increasingly, there would be joy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.